Aloha and welcome to Our Homes, Ending the Housing Crisis. My name is Stanley Chang, and I'm a state senator in Honolulu, Hawaii. Together with Faith Action for Community Equity, a grassroots interfaith nonprofit dedicated to addressing Hawaii's social justice challenges, we're here to understand housing more deeply and seek new, innovative solutions from all over the world to the severe housing crisis here. But many of the lessons may also apply to your community, wherever you may be. And now, on with the show. All right, good morning and welcome everyone to today's episode of Our Homes, Ending the Housing Crisis. We're thrilled to be joined by California community advocate, Susan Kirsch. She's one of the most prominent supporters of local control of planning decisions. She's the founder of Livable California, although she's no longer with the organization. And she has led the movement against bills like Senate Bill 50 and Senate Bill 827, which were very high profile battles in the California legislature over the issue of who gets to decide whether a community has more housing. So welcome, Susan. Um, we have a PowerPoint that you've kindly presented to us and we're ready when you are to begin. Well, okay, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this and giving voice to, uh, to those of us who are opposed to some of the draconian measures that keep coming at us year after year after year, it seems, to increase housing and density. And, and it's really a treat to know that there's a whole lot of people behind me, other people who have work, worked on this measure as well. And, and I thought I would start out just giving you a little bit about my background, because it's not like I jumped right in to create Livable California as a nine-county Bay Area. But just to say, as I think um, happens for many people, I really started out in, in community activism by paying attention to what was happening in my own backyard and finding that there were things in my neighborhood that were being imposed on us. And as, because we weren't organized, um, we, were, we were facing the brunt of some things around congestion and planning. So, so my start in community organizing goes back to my own neighborhood. And then it's a series of concentric circles that it went from starting my own neighborhood um, association. Then we realized that there were things that hap were happening in other neighborhoods, and we started a community organization called the Mill Valley, um, Friends of Mill Valley. And that expanded then to realize that there were things in the county, issues around planning and land use. So I was a part of starting a countywide organization called, uh, called Citizen Marin, then I made a run for the Board of Supervisors because I realized that to sit at the table and be one of the voters was an even more powerful place to be. Um, I got a respectable 40% of the vote against the incumbent but didn't win in that race. And it was after that that I went on to start Livable California as a nine-county area. And, and that has grown to be a statewide organization. And as you'll hear in some of my comments today, I'm now really looking at what the challenges are really that we're all facing on an even, you know, as much as a global level in terms of the housing. So, and I, I thought um, 
listeners might be interested too and viewers to just know a little bit about Livable California since that was the organization that is often credited along with many other efforts at being able to stop Senate Bill 50, which was a bill that was proposed to create high density housing in communities, especially near transit stops, but over the wishes of, of the members of the community. So, so we did a number of things in terms of creating the success and the momentum of Livable California. Um, one of the main things that we were pushing is the need to change the narrative. And I think you'll hear that as a theme that kind of I, I will come back to in my uh, PowerPoint. Um, because too often in the way the narrative of saying it's a housing crisis or we need to do different things with housing are based on a couple of things that are in air. And in California, for example, a part of changing the narrative was to challenge that claim that we had a 3.5 million unit housing shortage in California. And through combined efforts of our elected officials and our community volunteers, and working with a group called the Embarcadero Institute, they were able to do the, the deep dive into the research about what the housing shortage was and, and bring forward the data and the report that we really, we were still at like a 1.1 or 1.2 million shortage. So a big enough shortage, but still a 2 million, a 2 million unit difference. So in terms of challenging the narrative, one of the challenges is to like get accurate information before it's so widely marketed throughout the whole state with legislators and the governor all claiming that. The second part of changing the narrative that is a continuing effort is that the narrative was to say the reason we have a housing crisis is the cities are to blame or CEQA, the California Environmental Protection Act, is to blame. And so again, in our organizing efforts and as a part of recruiting and gaining more and more people to work with, what, with us was challenging that the assumption of the cities are to blame or, or environmental protections are to blame. And the third thing is, is a part of building momentum was to say that the strategies to disempower local communities in order to give greater power to corporate developers and real estate investors is the wrong way to go about solving our, how to, our housing shortage. So with that background, um, let's see, do I want to say anything else about, I guess just a, a couple of other things about Livable California. I would say our success is because we did a lot for education. We had our own meetings twice a month. We had a strong email exchange list. We had a website. But even more than that, we worked with people, again, the elected officials and community members who came together to be able to really do some of what might be obvious to you, Stan, but for us was a learning curve around, you know, how does a bill start and move through the legislative process? And what are the strategies by which you can have influence to a bill, you know, including meeting with assembly and senatorial representatives, working with a lobbyist, um, and then how to also empower local leaders to conduct town hall meetings or to engage and educate their community. And finally, a part of that, the empowerment of what we did was to get the votes. And not only were we successful in lobbying to be able to help change the perception of Senate Bill 50, 
We also were working at the community level to get more people running for office and being elected to their own city councils so that they could make a difference. Wonderful. Um, should we begin with the next so slide? With that, let's go to the slides, yes. Okay, let's see if this will work. Okay, so starting with a question, what's the big deal about choice and local control? Um, and we can go to the next slide because the next slide is a part of what answers that question in terms of really valuing that word sovereignty. And I think especially in the environment that we're living in right now, we can see how sovereignty has been something that is both a real blemish on our, on our history you know, as well as the little bit of how we celebrate it. So sovereignty in terms of how we have been offensive against that term, you know, bringing African slaves to America in order to boost the economy, you know, having our own time in 1776 to support our independence and sovereignty that we continue to do with great pride, but knowing too how willing legislators were to be able to institute what we now know as the Native American Trail of Tears. And fast forward to today, we know that just recently the Supreme Court upheld the Oklahoma Treaty so that that is some remedy coming that way. But knowing also in Hawaii in 1893, your own queen was deposed in order to make way for annexation. So a kind of theme around offenses to sovereignty coming, growing out of economic interests. Then if we fast forward to some other issues of how we're currently looking at sovereignty, um, we've got uh, in 1933, President Franklin Roosevelt who declared home ownership is a guarantee of social and economic stability. And so a part of the theme that is a, a theme that's too often, I think, being set aside is the idea of home ownership. We have a lot, at least in California, going to build rental housing, but I'll, I'm, I'll come back to that theme also. And then we had a brilliant strategy in 1942 for making home ownership possible with the GI Bill. Now, admitting there were some problems with that that relate to the Black Lives Movement today in terms of um, prohibiting you know, or doing redlining, which prohibited certain people from buying or having covenants in terms of that bill. Um, but still, there were some real positive points about the GI Bill. In 1982, though, there was a really interesting California law in 1982, just to say, because that seems like a long time ago, but already then there was the law that was called the Anti-NIMBY Law. And so there were already groups of people um, who were coming together to be what I would consider stewards of, an, our, of our environment, um, although that term is so often held with, um, <clears throat> you know, as a slur against people who are looking out for the environment. Then a jump to 2008 when we had the housing crisis and to just looking at the causes of that housing crisis, there's a great book that's written called Home Wreckers by Aaron Glantz, in which he talks about the predatory lending, the bank foreclosures, and the ways in which people were systematically denied access to 
um, being able to, to see the benefits of their investing in housing, not, not just because of their own um, misadventures into the housing market, but because the way they were pulled into it. And then in 10, 2010, just to kind of give balance to the, what happened in terms of the NIMBY, um, anti-NIMBY in 2010 and up until today, we see a big surge in what's called the YIMBY movement. So just to make sure those terms are defined, if there's anybody who doesn't know them, NIMBY was the expression for not in my backyard, and then YIMBY for yes in my backyard came forward and picked up steam and was especially funded you know, through corporations um, to bring about this idea of yet, uh, wanting a yes in people's backyards. On that point, um, Susan, if you don't mind, the um, NIMBY term for not in my backyard seems to me like it's a little bit derogatory. Is that the accurate term to describe the movement that you're part of? And if not, is there a better term that would more accurately reflect the concerns of the movement? Well, that's a really good question. And just to say, yes, the word was originally, I mean, even, even before this California law in 1982, the, the term was originally introduced by Jack Kemp, who, when he was uh, Secretary of HUD, the Housing and Urban Development uh, Program, and it was intended to be derogatory. It was intended to be dismissive of local agencies and city, including city councils and planning departments and, and people having a local point of view to protect what was happening in their communities. And, and so it has been kind of that ongoing challenge to local control. You know, uh, as I have spoken about on other occasions, uh, you know, I guess it's, it's my hope that we would be able to also cast what might occasionally have been negativity around NIMBY, as in redlining when it happened like that, but to really understand that it has an equal value of stewardship and that it's people who have time and energy and effort and a, a chance to be paying attention to be mindful of what is being proposed for our backyards, for the sovereignty of the areas that we live. And I wish there were a better term. I don't have a, I, I don't know if I'm, I would love to hear any other comments about where's the better term than NIMBY. Okay, maybe pro-local or pro-local control. That is possible, but really those two terms also often get dismissed in a, you know, as if they too are derogatory. I mean, just as an example, you know, as we get in and talk a little bit more about what's happening in California and an attempt to override single family zoning, you know, there are, you know, it's been attributed to Senator Scott Weiner, you know, that he considers the efforts to protect local communities, local single family neighborhoods as immoral or, you know, I understand it's, he's called it racist as well. So many of us see that as greatly unfair, but, but it's the pro-local part of it. It's that idea of, of being local and having a local perspective prevail. Got it. So should we go on? Yes, let's go on to the slide, the real, the real threat. So I know that 
there is the debate about housing is often you know in that those terms of like how many housing units are we short that there's the crisis of housing having housing units um, but in looking at and studying both the financial called sometimes called the financialization and the globalization of housing there's a couple of things that are going on that i think we really need to pay attention to to be able to have the real um uh, uh, the broad context of what we're facing so there is a book that um, uh, Peter Phillips, a, a professor at Sonoma State University wrote called Giants, the Global Power Elite. And a part of what he does in that book, he's able to use his, his research staff and interns at the college um, to identify 389 of the most powerful members of the transnational capitalist class and their interconnected networks, meaning how they share positions on the trilateral, trilateral commission or the, the committee of you know, different numbers and the economic committees. In 2016, Oxfam reported that now it was 62 people of these 389 who held as much wealth as half of the world or 7.4 billion. One of the terms that was identified for us, it you know, was really helpful during the Occupy movement of what maybe 10 years ago, was that idea of the increasing wealth of the 1%. So this concept is a part of that. In terms of you know, a kind of definition, the globalization of housing is a cultural shift in the social compact. For a long, long time, housing has been viewed as an individual investment that a you know, an individual or a family or a couple starting a family would make in order to have a home and security that would go with having a home with, you know, the picket fence or the, the little plot of land. And the shift that's been happening with the globalization of housing is that housing is now becoming more and more often viewed as a commodity or an asset that corporations can buy and sell as a part of an investment and looking especially at a return on investment at the corporate level of profit instead of the way home would be a place to live and raise your children. So in terms of the businesses who are part of that big businesses like Bechtel or Lennar, who some you, know, you might be familiar with, or investment groups like Blackstone and Carlyle. Um, and what happens as corporations are coming in to buy more of our land and do more, bigger and bigger developments like projects that are the two or 3,000 uh, units in a complex, the mortgage and the rent payments are more often flowing out of the community. And as that money flows out of the community, it's leaving fewer and fewer resources for a quick response to local needs. In 2017, the United Nations Human Rights Council said that the financialization of housing undermines democratic governance, exacerbates inequality, dehumanizes housing, and is causing displacement and homelessness. So like from that perspective, we've got a big problem in terms of the globalization of housing. And just, I listed the resource here, which is one that I sometimes refer to in terms of staying up to date on what's happening in this effort. Um, there's the group called Oh, that should read iGlobal, 
iGlobal, the, the iGlobal forums, um, where they're talking about how you can make the most of private equity and mezzanine financing and a bunch of things like that. So, so the real threat, I think, is the globalization of housing. So let's look at the next slide in terms of how that starts funneling down from a global perspective to look at how that's playing out locally. So uh, this slide called Globalization, Corporate Power and the Loss of Local Control. Um, and I did some research looking at the supporters who are in favor of many of the housing bills that are currently working their way through the California legislation. And I compiled this list of who the names are, what names show up, you know, on a somewhat regular basis, not all of them, but many of these are the same names that on nine different bills, where some of us in California now have a campaign going called Nix the Nine, because we see them all as being harmful. The, the names that show up on supporting these bills are big industry, like California Building Industry, the Associated Builders, California Chamber of Commerce, California Apartment Association. Um, and then we see a whole bunch of YIMBY named organizations that are supporting these bills, California YIMBYs, YIMBY Action, YIMBY Neoliberal, and as well there were often names of individual city YIMBY groups. The Bay Area Council is a huge organization of which any of the big industries in Silicon Valley are likely to be members of the Bay Area Council. So the Facebooks and Amazons and Googles and Ubers and Lyfts are all members of them, as well as the big banks. The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is a part of it. Um, Facebook, the San Francisco Foundation, the Silicon Valley Foundation, I mean, you can read some of the others. And one of the things that I think is really significant about looking at this list of who's supporting these bills is the role that YIMBYs are playing in this. And so let's just, I pulled out one example that Yimbis, for example, got a million dollar donation from one Silicon Valley company called Stripe. But in addition to that, they have other companies that have been donating to them in a big way so that they have money to organize and staff and lobby. And at the same time, Yimbis are doing that, the companies themselves can kind of stand back and be influencing legislation, but do it with the name of Yimbis. Senator Scott Weiner himself, one of the big pu pushers of these bills for high density housing, you know, has over half a million dollars from Facebook, Google, Amazon, and another more than, uh, you know, the 803,000 from big real estate. Now, if you just look at this slide and look at how many names and how much power there is on the top of this slide, and then look down at the bottom under who opposes the 2020 housing legislation. There's maybe a dozen or so of individual cities who send letters in in opposition. And now just to understand, the cities are dealing on the front line with the COVID-19 pandemic. So there's reason to understand they have a lot of other things that they're dealing with. There's often a few individual letters from homeowner groups or taxpayer groups. Livable California has been really strong on getting letters in. And occasionally there are letters from the League of California Cities. And the reason 
that's a big disappointment to me is because of the cities. What this shows to me is that cities are lacking strong representation for local city needs and efforts, and that 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 their voice is not just not being heard in a way that's strong enough. So let's go from that to I want to show people a little bit about the nine bills. If we go to the next slide. And before we do that, Susan, I just wanted to observe that a lot of the Hawaii pro-housing, pro-development, pro-growth um, movement is associated with the developers themselves and with the labor unions. But it looks to me like while they are a component of the California movement, it looks like it's a lot more coming from the Silicon Valley giants like the Facebooks and the Googles. What, what is in it for Facebook or Google? Why would they get involved in something that doesn't have to do directly with their business model? Well, a part of why they wanna get involved is because of you know, either issues around um, having, having housing near jobs and, having, and, and also looking at that in terms of how do big business pay their fair share towards the kinds of expenses that come to a city when businesses are doing well, really well, but not paying their fair share. I mean, I'll give you an example of that. I just had um, taken some notes from something I'd, I'd read recently. This is about Jeff Bezos from Amazon, who has a net worth of $111 billion and pays zero in federal income taxes. And the, the gap between what these companies are making in terms of how much money they bring in and how protected they are around that is a part of why, um, around their, why they're a part of this. They also were instrumental, many of them, in forming uh, what was called the CASA Compact. CASA didn't stand for anything in particular, but it was the effort to bring housing to the Bay Area. And it was out of an 18-month planning effort that excluded 97 of the 101 cities in the nine-county Bay Area that they identified 10 housing bills which started working their way through the legislatures last year. Okay, great. Thank you. So, okay, I know there's a lot of information on this slide, but, um, you know, I'm not going to focus on all of this just to say um, this is the, some of the 2020 California housing bills and the, the, what we're looking to do to hopefully have all of these bills as a collective package of negative impact on communities be what we call nix the nine because they're harmful. So I, I want to call your attention to, you know, especially uh, we'll look at the, the, the starting on the left-hand side on the items in the darker green under developers win and how they win is the way in which they have a certain kind of legislative jargon that makes what they're do, doing seem really attractive. And in the column next to that is how it is that residents and cities lose which is a bit of a translation then between what the legislative jargon is and what the real impact is on communities. So in the legislators jargon, we have the ter a term like upzoning, which to the residents is meaning more density 
and especially now um, it, that that's happening in single-family neighborhoods. That last year legislation that passed was to make accessory dwelling units, ADUs, um, by right in single-family family neighborhoods. And now if you look at the X's across this top line, you can see how there are a number of bills, separate bills, you know, over, overlapping bills, and many of these bills overlapping with legislation that was passed in previous years, but there's a lot of legislative effort, firepower coming to increase density, which the jargon is to upzone. On the next item, you know, another like positive, you love the, you know, the term streamline, that just sounds like such a good term that you want to embrace streamlining. But what that does in terms of communities is that it, it means that safeguards that have been established over a 40 year period with the California Environmental Quality Act are being challenged or dismissed. And again, you can see there are at least three bills which are all working to reduce those safeguards. The legislators like to talk about incentives and bonuses for developers. But what that is too often meaning, and especially in this cycle of legislation, is that communities are going to get a lot more market rate housing, but that there will be far less low income housing to really meet that need for affordability for those people with the greatest need for low income housing. You know, in California, we have something called the Regional Housing Need Allocation Number. It's a state assigned quota to cities and counties. And what we're finding is that many of those numbers are being set up with high, what seem highly unrealistic numbers. And there are threats, you know, consequences that are being looked to build into the, to the, as punishments to the cities if they don't meet those quotas. Um, there's another term which sounds pretty good on its surface, but is really the, the term objective standards. But what that is doing is eliminating uh, what has been held in communities and planning departments at the local level for balancing subjective and objective viewpoints for what's happening in cities. So um, what we're getting is more one size fits all and if we get on to this final item, if there are objective standards, that's where the legislators are also claiming um, a benefit that there will be ministerial review, which in the jargon of residents and cities is more often thought of as rubber stamping. And that if there's an item that is going to be subject for ministerial review, it means there's no public notice that's required. There's no hearings that are required. And in other words, there's no voice for the community about those items. Um, so, and let me just, if I can just want add something that I came across just this morning as I was like looking at this idea of globalization and I just wanna call out, um, this is an article, if anyone wants to think some more about globalization and housing and what we especially see happening in California, this is called Why the Housing Crisis is really about globalization. This is by William Rees, R-E-E-S. And just to say, some of the things that he finds out, he's a Canadian, so he's writing about Canada, but he is writing about how the housing shortage is really not an aspect of, of 
shortage of physical housing units. His research shows that in Vancouver, there are 25,000 empty condominiums or houses. Empty because wealthy buyers are either able to have both a first home and a second home, and one of those homes stands empty, or condominiums is empty some of the time, and or investors who are buying up property and allowing them to sit empty during the time that they're expecting to have appreciated value. He writes about how 20% of Vancouver property is foreign owned, and that he sees as concern, and that the land grab that's going on in, in his article, he, he says it's, it's especially happening when government, government or governance structures are already weak or are being weakened. So when I look at this kind of chart and think of the conversations many of us have had about why we're opposed to these bills, it is because there is that kind of weakening going on among people in local communities that means that corporate buyers are better able to come in and purchase and take over land. So, so I um, highly recommend his article. I would have listed it had I seen it a little bit earlier. But, but there's, let, let's go on to the next slide just to also then be seeing how, um, how what, uh, what we're facing in California compares to what I learned about what you guys are doing in, Cal in uh, Hawaii. Just to follow up on these housing bills that we have on this slide. Uh, so some of these are inherently state functions, like CEQA, for instance, is a state-level act that requires environmental review, so only the state would be able to abrogate it. But if we're talking about something like upzoning, more density in single-family neighborhoods, if that initiative were happening at the county level, for instance, at Marin County level, and if the Marin County um, council members or commissioners advanced a bill like that, would that address the concerns of local versus statewide control? Um, in other words, is the primary sin of these bills that they're coming from a top-down level, or are they also bad policy no matter what level they're coming from? Well, I think it's both of those things. And I think a part of what's happened that is often denied by these kinds of bills being pushed from the top down is that there are already some significant efforts happening at the local level to be able to address issues of housing and, and, and providing housing for vulnerable communities and for a, get, making sure that there's a range of options. And so I think it would be, it might be more palatable because there would be a greater opportunity for people to weigh in on whatever would be happening at a county level and that that might help remove some that let, let's say that might help get to a better product in terms of what the housing was going to be than what the statewide top-down measures do. Got it. Thank you. So I was really pleased in just part in, in anticipating speaking on this webinar to become familiar with the Aloha Homes project. And, and I thought it would be interesting just, and I'm sure you've got uh, supporters and opposers to this, your project too, because that seems to be the way anything happens these days. But, but I did a comparison of some of what I see the California bills, characteristics of it, 
versus what you seem to be capturing in the plan for the Aloha homes. And, and I should probably just start this out by saying my understanding and Stan, connect, collect, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but a part of this plan for the Aloha homes is that you would be building very high dense uh, units of housing, you know, with, with buildings maybe 40 or 50 feet tall and with a density of 250 units per acre, something like that. Do I have that? I mean, right. Um, well, not even just 50 feet, but even 50 stories. 50 stories. I'm 50 50 stories. towers. Yeah. So, so just as people are looking at this, you know, and, and, and feeling really positive about how I've identified the Aloha homes, just to know, I mean, picture the 50 stories where there might be concern about that. But some of the, some of the ways that I see these contrasting um, in terms of ownership, that the California bills are pretty much solely you know, building on the idea of private individuals, like individual purchase couples or individuals who would purchase, but also investor partners and corporate purchase, where the Aloha Homes model is based on the idea that this is already state-owned land, so there is no land transfer happening in terms of building the Aloha Homes. That most of what's happening in California is that these are being built for rental, Whereas in the Aloha Homes project, the fact that you're you're giving a 99-year lease answers that issue of many people's concerns about just finding stability in being able to have their own home. In California, you know, the buyers are restricted just by their means to be able to buy. Whereas, you know, I think it's interesting that you have as a provision that it's restricted to Hawaiians which is one thing that kind of addresses the concern in the article that I was referring to by the Canadian. Most of these California bills have no- Hawaii residents. Hawaii. Hawaii residents. Yes. Most of these, uh, in California, there are few occupancy requirements, but yours requires owner occupancy. The affordability, we have our um, um, average medium income ranges of very low, low, moderate, or luxury, whereas yours is based on, you know, a fixed price of $300,000. For funding, really, here is the biggest problem that is plaguing California, or one of, maybe one of several, but a big problem, is that California has no reliable source for funding what would be subsidized or low-income housing that in 2012, California closed its 400 redevelopment agencies, which had been set up to be a funding source. I mean, with some good reason because of some of the corruption and graft that was going on in that. But that closure from 2012 has never really been made up in any other kinds of ways. I mean, yes, there's tracks, credits, there's bonds, there's currently a bill that is going to be coming up as a ballot measure. I don't think it made it this time, but on having a regional taxation issue. When in your model, you're promising that you can do all of this with no new taxes. The buildings proposed in California building have no provisions for, for maintenance. That's They just are trying to get them built where you've got the 75% stake equity share, which um, I won't venture into explaining that with any detail, except that it sounded really positive in terms of having an ongoing source of money for maintenance and upkeep or renovation. And in terms of the California bills, neighborhood impact and density, you know, we have what I call 
uh, horizontal density, which is that these bills are putting density um, throughout all of our single family neighborhoods. So we're really reducing the amount, the various, uh, the choice of, of places where that people could move into. And that this, with this horizontal density, there's reduced parking and there's no provision for services. So what you're doing, and, and this should be vertical density, 50 stories, not that 50 feet, but 50 stories, with a plan for services and that you have promised, as I read the documents, that there's no redevelopment of existing residential areas. So there's a real kind of honoring of what's already there. So, so you know, I thought, Stanley, I might stop there just to either take more of your questions or if there might be other questions, or I'm prepared to also talk about two of the California bills in a little more detail if you wanted to go to those. All right. Well, that was that was very um, a very thorough presentation. Um, audience members, if you'd like to ask questions, you can do so with the chat box. You can do so with the Q and A um, box as well. And uh, and while you're getting those questions in, I I'm honestly I wasn't expecting that you'd be um, supportive of a concept like Aloha Homes. And you know, one of the primary I think concerns about a concept like this, and let's make it a little bit more concrete, is it would involve taking a parcel like the Aloha Stadium parcel here in Honolulu, which has been proposed for redevelopment anyway, um, a hundred acre parcel and potentially putting something like 50, 50 story towers on it. And while that idea has not been floated too much in the local community, I think we can probably safely assume that any proposal to stick 50 towers on top of this parcel, um, even if it does meet all of those uh, conditions that we've described, would, would encounter a lot of community resistance. In that case, should the state try to plow forward with a project like that, or should it try to search for a community or a parcel where either there was no resistance which might be difficult, or one with no neighbors, where there was no organized resistance. I think where all of us maybe need to go in terms of looking at housing and housing choices and buildings, I mean, I, I guess I had not quite realized there were 50 50 foot towers. That's quite astonishing. Um, but I'm, I, because in California, we were led to believe that we had the 3.5 million unit housing shortage, when in fact, people are moving out of California. I mean, we've had so many people move out, we're likely to be giving up a congressional seat. And with the COVID virus, I understand that there's even more people going, they don't need the expense of California, they're gonna move away. I think we need to go back and recount or reimagine how many housing units do we need? And if it's true, as this article, the, um, uh, is, if that's true about the number of units that are vacant, and I've, I mean, I've heard that here in the Bay Area as well as in LA, maybe we should do more to be looking at, and I don't know what it's like in Hawaii, but maybe we need to do more to see how many buildings are already built that are standing vacant or only partially occupied 
and what could be done to assure that we're not building and taking up land and airspace to build if we have other options to, than that. And often I'm going to that conclusion around how the building industry and all of the associated unions and, and people who benefit from having building happen are, are huge beneficiaries and maybe not people so much. So I guess I'd wonder in your case, do you need that many units in Hawaii to either through a collaborative effort that everybody agrees with that or through something more forceful to force that to be built? You know, is there the need? And what are the numbers that verify the need? And what are the options that have been considered that would maybe provide a little less housing, but have something of better, better outcomes? The distinction between local versus outsider is a very important one in Hawaii. And it's one that we are very conscious of. There's, it's very complex. You know, the way we use the word local has a racial and ethnic component to it. It's a, it's a very complex word in Hawaii. But um, if we are to, you know, I think most people in Hawaii would agree that local people should have priority in filling the existing, existing vacant housing stock. Um, but as you've already pointed out, in communities like Northern California, the Bay Area, we do know there exists an influx of non-local people, often highly paid or with a capacity to pay a lot of money for housing, um, whether they're tech engineers or whether they're overseas investors or just even people who like the lifestyle, the beautiful scenery, the pleasant weather of the Bay Area. Would you say that there should be, um, is, there a, is there even a constitutional way to restrict the flow of, you know, bona fide outsiders who would like to make their lives in the Bay Area? I think that's a really important question. And I wish that were a question that senators in California and Hawaii, I think that's, that's a question to be taking up. If it's true, and, and to me it seems true in terms of this trend for globalization and the financialization of housing, and if we kind of understand that any of those finite assets, minerals and water and land, is where the, the asset value of those increase, it would seem we need to be mindful of how we're monitoring that. And I mean, I think it's just such an interesting challenge because as we can see with the COVID-19 virus spreading irregardless of boundaries and, and geographic um, definitions of location, you know, maybe this is the invitation for all of us to be looking at how starting wherever we could in the most, um, I mean, here the Bay Area would be a great place to start it. I'm not sure it's likely to fly here, but maybe in partnership with other states to, I mean, we need to do something about the, in, the in, unequal distribution of wealth and the fact that fewer and fewer people are acquiring more and more of the wealth and that as they acquire that, 
they control the housing market and that that has the implications for how many people can get into the units even if they're available or have the money to have a job that pays enough that they can afford the rent for a unit. You know, it's also linked to the food chain and who is controlling the land to set the prices for producing and delivering the food and or for people to buy it. So I, I think you're right about the issue is really complex. It's, it's a complex problem because it ends up overlapping into so many other areas. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel like that really answers the question except to say if we can set limits on who can vote in any designated area, we should be able, I think, to set limits on who can buy and own property or what percentage of property can be owned by an outside minority. Um, and I think it, does, it just needs so much more investigation and conversation. And, but it would be, my wish would have been that California might have used this time of the pandemic instead of to keep pushing forward bills that are that simplistic model of build, 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 there would be time that they would have taken and could still take time to be looking at the deeper underlying issues of how it is that we have, uh, have the inequity problem of wealth as well as that spilling over to being a problem of housing. So you mentioned already the issue of diversity. So again, to take a concrete example, that I'm sure is true in many places in California too, in the neighborhood of Kailua, a very desirable residential neighborhood here on Oahu, because prices are escalating so rapidly, there are a lot of folks with lower incomes being pushed out of the community. Is there, what can we do so that these communities that are desirable, that do see the trends of globalization, the inflow of outside capital, to preserve the diversity that we believe is desirable? You know, one of the things would be that we'd go back to the era of Eisenhower when what a tax rate was as high as 90%, 70 or 90%, I'm not sure what, what it was, it was very high. And that it would be one of the ways that we start controlling who can accumulate so much wealth that, that, that it's not available to other people. And drastic as that seems, I mean, the other options are that we do, that we finally would get a handle on doing more taxing for corporations so that they are contributing something of a fair share to the costs of road maintenance and libraries and schools and all of that. Um, so that that uh, that is a pretty drastic proposal, and it confirms something that I that I suspected, which is that you probably see yourself as a a Democrat, a liberal, coming from the left side of the spectrum, and um, that's it's interesting because all of these uh, individuals who have introduced these bills are also Democrats in the California legislature, and. Um, in theory, the fact that that both sides of the equation are coming from the same political party should make it easier to reach across that divide, that internal divide, and come together with a potential solution. So, um, 
why, well, has there been that kind of a dialogue within the left in California? And if not, um, you know, if you had a chance to sit down with the proponents of these measures in California to work out a list of common ground, what would that look like? Well, see, I think that's a fabulous idea. And as far as I know, those conversations haven't gone on as, as, as bringing diverse points of view together so much as they've gone on kind of in the silos of opinion of, you know, using those labels YIMBY or NIMBY again, that, that there's, there's been conversations there and kind of cheerleading on either side for what should be done. I imagine there is some place in the conversation that there is the common ground that is is the a common ground of caring and what it is that's common really to all of humanity for wanting people to have education and safety and health provisions and a number of things that are uniformly thought of as being quality of life you know, and conducive to being able to, to live the good life. And it seems, as it, when, I, when I early on was talking about some of the efforts with Livable California to change the narrative, and I think an ongoing effort, it seems like too often the corporate influence of profit and a value of profit, you know, at, at, you know, at, at any means is what is too often getting into and interfering with getting that right balance between caring, you know, community caring and corporate profit. So to bring those two bodies together and to have that conversation, not with the foregone conclusion that to build, 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 and build higher and build density is going to be the answer. I mean, even now with COVID, I think we have a wonderful opportunity as we're learning that you don't have to live close to where you work and that we can do remote things with a growing efficiency and creativity. So I think that we've got so many upheavals happening that this would be an ideal time, like to take a break from everything else, from passing legislation as usual, especially here in California, just put the brakes on all of that, take the time to be looking at the big and the complex questions with a commitment to be a collaborative about finding solutions as we can be. Well, we do have Senator Wiener coming on a future episode of this webinar. And <laughs> is that what you would tell him if you had the chance to ask a question or to, you know, raise a concern to him? Um, I, I think it would be great if we could sit down together. And I think a part of why he may not be eager to do that is if we go back, if you think of that earlier slide showing of how many donor campaign donors he's getting from Silicon Valley businesses and from the real estate industry and assuming he wants to keep pursuing that career and contrasting that with the funding base that is there with cities or with neighborhoods or with homeowner associations or renters like there, that is where the, the imbalance becomes really apparent. And so, so we need something which is that further, like just um, 
I, I don't know, for some reason, I'm, I'm reminded just of that story of like, of the, like, who is your neighbor? And, re, and answering that question, who is your neighbor? The story of the Good Samaritan and finding ways in these troubling times as we're dealing with issues of Black Lives Matter or, you know, still Native Americans in the Tulsa finding, which was to their advantage, but that we would find more ways to be thoughtful together and really look to break some of the old molds and see what we can find for new molds. Um, well, our time is short, unfortunately. We've had a vigorous discussion. We have a lot of questions coming in from the audience. So maybe if we can do more of a quick answer um, in the closing of this webinar, if you don't mind, Susan. <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, one of them is from um, a local affordable housing uh, leader named Kevin Carney, who works for EAH, which is, um, of course, from California. The question is, do you support the development in general of low-income rental housing? Yes. Okay. Uh, another question. You talked about the population decline in California, which Hawaii is also experiencing. One of the questions is, is one of the reasons we're losing people because of the lack of new housing being constructed? Or would you say that it's because any new housing being constructed is being snapped up by the wealthy overseas investors and other forces of globalization? Um, well, a couple of things. One, I think you know, people are moving because they are finding other places that are more affordable and or they have families or they have work or there's some reason which is to celebrate that we all have choices about where we live and where we want to be. Um, I, th I think the misconception is that building, new building, will ever be affordable, at least to those people making minimum wage or making even up to, you know, what, 30 or $40 an hour. None of the buildings that are currently, the new building cannot, as it's currently set up, ever meet the needs of those people who are the most desperate people who might be falling into homeless homelessness. So um, I think we should we should abandon the idea. We can build new new housing and it will be affordable. That's not, it'll be affordable in 30 years, which is why we had 30 year fixed mortgages. Building new to try to do that is gonna take huge subsidies that I don't think there's the sources to do that at this time. Okay. Um. Are there any initiatives, well, let me put it this way. So there are some few projects that are 100% affordable and there's one currently being proposed for the Kailua neighborhood, which we already mentioned, and it's encountered a lot of community resistance. Um, if we can agree that there is a project that does check all the boxes in terms of affordability and so on, and it still nevertheless needs community resistance, do you have any ideas on actually making it come to fruition? Uh, I think it's going to become easier to do that as to, with these the California bills that are going through as the voice of the community is removed from the discussion. I think we don't know yet what the unintended consequences of, of that are going to be. And I think, again, I'm reminded of the first word of my presentation in terms of sovereignty. It's like, how do we keep thinking about sovereignty and who is it? How do we all in sovereignty longing for freedom or independence and choice? 
how do we balance that, our individual longings for that, and especially somehow how do we find ways to temper that when it's related to profit rather than just basic needs and find our way through the complex problem. Great. Well, Susan, we really appreciate your time today. Um, I did have a final slide. Do, oh, do sure. Let's, let's flip through the, la the next two slides and then just go to the final one because it was um, where I was giving, looking at that idea of meeting, meeting housing needs. I mean, say, thinking that at least here in California, you know, besides building housing, we really need to rebuild trust because of false numbers, false assumptions, and the false process. We do in California have the model, California Senate Bill 1299 being brought forward by Portentino, which is looking to use big box retail to build workforce housing. Um, you know, I think we could look at other models that have already existed that have really been successful at affordable housing, the rotary model for building housing. I mean, I think um, uh, the um, Habitat for Humanity has a great model. And if, would there be a way that we could repurpose the GI Bill to make it a Black Lives Matter bill or for anybody who's been disenfranchised, but looking to see how we can boost home ownership again, maybe starting with small homes, but make home ownership a, a, a returning value. And then we haven't mentioned yet land trusts, but we in Oak, over in Oakland, for example, is the link that I've listed here where there's a fabulous Oakland land trust. Um, kind of, we touched on this a bit, but that idea of working together to collaborate, not antagonize, um, maybe invigorate section eight housing and find some more ways to get that to work. And then finally, I have this idea of the importance of like staying in our own lane. And it feels like a part of what's happened is that we have people really moving out of areas where they are primarily responsible. So by staying in your own lane, believing we will be better if we allow cities to zone and enforce, builders to build, bankers to fund, businesses to pay living wages, and government to do the work of setting fair tax codes. We didn't talk about this because it's way beyond what we're supposed to talk about, but that idea of the financial solving the pension crisis, which is bleeding money away from cities for city services and then government to create safety nets. So thank you for giving me a few minutes to go to that slide. Well, thank you so much. I think that does answer a lot of the questions that were coming in from the audience um, about what favorable models there are that do exist right now. And I wanna thank you on behalf of everyone in the audience and everyone here in Hawaii for being thoughtful in this presentation and giving a lot of um, thought to what a potential path forward is, where that common ground does exist, and in very forcefully articulating a case for local control and for control of growth in particular that I think has, you know, held the day in Hawaii for at least as long as I've been alive. And so I think that for those who might be on the who might identify themselves on the more YIMBY side of the spectrum, I think it's really essential to understand why things are the way they are and why the current system um, has been so successful at resisting movements like the SB50 and SB827 density and uh, you know, uh, densification uh, trends. And so 
Susan, I really appreciate your time today and Thank for you so much for having me. And that does it for today's episode of Our Homes Ending the Housing Shortage, uh, the Housing Crisis. Thank you again, and we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Our Homes, Ending the Housing Crisis. On behalf of Faith Action for Community Equity and me, Stanley Chang, thank you for being part of the solution to this crisis.